0: ready to be mentored by some of the best minds in entrepreneurship in the world then you're listening to the right podcast ditch digger ceo we're going to be interviewing CEOs and founders who will be telling their amazing rags to riches stories these entrepreneurs who dominate the industries they serve will be sharing the secrets to their success we'll be talking to millionaires and billionaires many who started with nothing you're going to be mentored with golden nuggets of shared experiences from my guest, whose time is worth thousands and even tens of thousands of dollars per hour. I started in the paving business right out of high school and with no college education, mentorship has been my education of choice. I started over 25 companies in the last 20 years, have generated over 1.5 billion in revenues. My guarantee is this. If you listen to Ditch Digger CEO and you wanna be more successful, you will become more successful. The secrets of my success and for many of the world's greatest business leaders will be revealed. Let Ditch Digger CEO mentor you. We're on for another episode of Ditch Digger CEO, and I am excited as can be to have a uh, a leader in a space that I that I want to learn a lot about, Chris. So I've got a lot to learn about technology and and you know how, how to how to really use workforce uh, you know our workforces more productively, right? All these answers uh, that we're going to get out of, out of this guy, Jeff here. Okay. So we got Jeff Wald here, a, 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 lead, a leader in, in the space and, and, and uh, entrepreneur and a, uh, you know, just, just a high achiever type of people we love. So Jeff, introduce yourself and tell you, rather you tell us a little bit about yourself instead of me telling about you.
1: Well, I'll tell you this, though, Gary. If you're promising your audience answers, I might let you down. If you want some ideas, ideas I can give you. I can give you some data to back up my ideas. I'm not sure I have answers, but all right, let's, all right. uh, let's dive in. Let's dive in. So, thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Jeff Wald. I am a serial entrepreneur. My first company that ever started failed miserably and basically bankrupted me. And it's a story that doesn't get told very often in startup land that that is actually the high probability outcome failure next company uh, we built was a content-sharing platform that we sold to Salesforce. And the most recent company uh, is a company called WorkMarket. WorkMarket is enterprise software that enables companies to organize, manage, and pay their on-demand workforce. So as companies are transforming their labor model to a more variable structure, our software was the largest piece of software enabling that move. We were able to raise nearly $100 million from SoftBank, Union Square Ventures, and a few others. And uh, we were very fortunate to sell the company to ADP in 2018. I got the opportunity to be on the senior leadership team of ADP for the two and a half year lockup. And uh, given that I am an entrepreneur at heart, after that two and a half years and one day, uh, I did depart. Uh, But the time at ADP not only allowed me to accelerate work market's growth, and work market is just killing it right now, but it allowed me to finish a book that I've been writing for the last seven years on the future of work. And the book's focus is to look at history, is to look at data, and to talk to the actual people engaging workforces and transforming workforces and to use that evidence set to produce a reasonable series of probability, high probability predictions on the future of work.
0: Wow. That's, that's a, that's a quick elevator. That's a great elevator, but you really explained a lot in, a, in about two minutes. So thank you for that. Now I want you to go into uh, into detail on this stuff. I mean, I, I like actually, I like to hear that first failed story, but I want to hear who you were as a, as a punk, as a kid growing up, <laughs> what, what got this, uh, what, what got this uh, entrepreneurial mind turning thinking that uh, you have for you to have the goal that you didn't have to go to work for somebody else to be successful. Tell me about that.
1: Well, I'll tell you this. It, it wasn't, this wasn't a deep seated thing. It wasn't like, you know, I was a kid and had lemonade stands and then started this thing and a snow shoveling business. That, that was not me. I was very studious and very, you know, focused on grades and things like that and, and athletics. And it wasn't until um, I worked at a venture firm which I only went to the venture firm, by the way, because I got fired from JP Morgan. I started my career as an M&A banker, JP Morgan. I mean, technically I was let go. I wasn't fired. Fired means, you know, for cause. But I will tell you this. I got, JP Morgan paid for business school for me, which was, they had never done that before in the history of the firm. And when I got back, I was so full of myself that I walked into the head of M&A's office, a gentleman by the name of Rob Kendler, who's one of the most senior bankers on Wall Street now. I was like, Rob, I'm smarter than everybody here and you need to promote me to vice president. He's like, what? You've yeah. just been gone for two years on a vacation. You think I'm going to promote you two years ahead of, if you had even stayed here, you have another three years before you go vice president. It's like, I can't do it. I need to be a VP now. And, uh, he's like, all right, let me think about it. And he came back two weeks later during a round of layoffs. He's like, Hey, I'm gonna let you go. Cause uh-huh. you didn't want to be here. So I'm letting you go. And I will tell you this. I walked by, I was like, cool. I walked back to my desk and I started crying. I just, I was blown away. I was devastated. I couldn't believe that that had just happened. And you know, you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off, you take your lumps, you know, you take it like an adult and you keep going. And I ended up getting a job at an early stage investment firm called Glenrock. I had never had any exposure to technology. I had never had any exposure to entrepreneurs. And in four years there, writing checks to entrepreneurs, The biggest criticism my boss had of me is at the end of meetings, he'd say to me, he'd be like, you have to stop fawning over these people. Because I'd sit in meetings, I'd be like, oh my God, you guys are so great. Oh my God, what you're doing so cool. He's like, we have to negotiate with these people. You can't tell them how great they are the entire meeting. But there was something that, and not to use this term, there was something about what they do that in my mind is truly what makes America great. These men and women said, you know what, there's a better way and I'm going to risk my career capital. I'm going to risk my capital. I'm going to risk my friends and family's capital to go after it. Because if I succeed, there's a whole lot of gold at the end of that rainbow. And I know it's a tough rainbow and I know it's a tough road, but I'm willing to do it to do something better to, mm-hmm. to fill a hole in the marketplace. And you know what, that to me needs to be supported with capital. If you have it with some emotional support. And so, he said to me one day, he said, if you're so enamored with what they're doing, if you're so engaged and so fired up about it, start your own company. And so six months later, I did. Wow! Well, what year was that and how old were you? I was 32 and that was 2006, somewhere around there. Yeah, 2006.
0: Cool. Wow, that's awesome. And then, uh, and you know, so did you how did you prepare for that over that six month period, whatever it was, you you know, must've got that message when he said that, that boy, you know, you, if you're, if you're so passionate, you know, think about it. And for him to say that was pretty cool too, for, to be your boss, right. To be able to say that was pretty cool. Cause he's kind of, he's kind of saying, Hey man, you know, watch, you want you here, but you're, if you, if you think you're capable, don't waste yeah.
1: your life. Right. That's well, cool. That's the cool. piece of advice I didn't take is, and we'll give you money and we'll help fund it. And I was like, no, I can do this on my own. So oh, really? you know, that, that arrogance coming back, which, we all need to tamp it down healthy. A healthy amount of arrogance is fine, but uh, a little too much has gotten burned. My got me sit my fingers singed more than once. <laughs> and so um, over those six months, I had reconnected with an entrepreneur who I tried to back in 2004 and he and I became buddies and he ended up taking money from other people and uh, he had exited the business and, I just said, Hey, look, what are you thinking about next? And he said, actually I've been starting to hatch an idea. And he and I would meet three or four times a week and whiteboard things out debate and discuss things. Then we go away for two weeks, not see each other, each do independent research and then come back and debate and discuss. And that business became uh, a company called SpinBack, which uh, we started in uh, late 2006
0: And then how big was spin back when you, when you, when you say it started, it was already going kind of right.
1: So, you know, he and I left, uh, you know, I left the firm. He and I formally started the company with a third co-founder and uh, I had put a few million dollars into it. And we at one point had 12 employees. We were going for about a year and a half and we were about to launch. We were about to go into the world. We had beta customers lined up our beta customers are companies that are also bankrupt circuit city was a beta customer. The Sharpage image was a beta customer. Um, but we had Dell, we had a few others that were ready to use our our product, which was a content sharing platform. And, uh, my two co-founders sued each other. And I will tell you guys that like, I still replay that in my mind, even to this day. And what could I have done differently? And I, you know, I said to the two of them, I said, look, if you guys go down this road, the only people that are going to make money in this company are the lawyers. Yes. And I kept thinking, how do I bridge their gaps? And I kept trying to play peacemaker because I wanted us all to be together. And what I should have done is right when they started getting at each other's throats, it's just been like, you're out. And just picked one of them and pushed them out. And they would have gone. But by the time I tried and finally tried to do that, they both dug their heels in and now nobody would go.
0: Okay. This is 2008 or so, 2009, 2000.
1: That is early 2008.
0: So you're ready to, you're ready to launch pretty much, right? With some pilot Mm -hmm. customers and all that. And then this happens.
1: Yep. And then I didn't leave my apartment for a month deep in it, deep in depression, just so bummed. I was broke. I mean, literally broke. Like I got the call from my mom. Do you need to move back home? And for somebody that had that arrogance, And a lot of it was fake arrogance, as a lot of arrogance sometimes is, for you to get that phone call, having gone to these wonderful schools and worked at these wonderful places, and I was totally wiped out. And, uh, you know, it's wonderful to get that call in some ways, right? Like, so it's such a gift to have that kind of support system around you and things like that, and many people don't have that. And so I'm grateful for that, but it doesn't make it any less horrifying (laughs) when you get that call. But, you know, again... You take your lumps, you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off and you keep going. So how? how do you, I mean, how, how do you roll on with it after that? I will say it was my older brother was, who was one of the biggest influences in my life. He's just of all the humans I've met in all of my travels all over this planet, he is just the kindest, most insightful, most down to earth, most wonderful person I know. And he just, he was like, Hey man, you got to shake it off. Like, what difference would it make if you'd sold the company? And, you know, I was like, oh, well, it's this, it's this and this and this. And he's like, you are, you are all those things. Just be them. And I was like, okay, I will go be them. And so my, my journey then um, was restarting that business after the two of them settled their lawsuits for no money. Nobody won that. The lawyers made a ton of money. And then I restarted it with two new partners who they were really in the front seat and I was kind of in the back seat and we built the company up and it got sold to Salesforce. Same concept. I, uh,
0: yeah. So 2009 or 2008, still you got going again.
1: Uh, it was probably about 2009.
0: And then you sold it. What year did you sell to Salesforce?
1: 2010.
0: What that fast? Yeah. Did,
1: were you able to create any real value in it that, for the, yes. that time? Yes. Well real value was created. We made, well we made real money. Well, look, we were able to take, because the as part of the settlement, I took all the assets back. So I had all the code, right? I had everything. And we had customers that were ready to use it. Now, some of them had gone out of business, the circuit cities and uh, the sharper images of the world. But uh, we still had beta customers ready to go. And uh, we had the code base. And so we just dusted it off, hired a few more people and built some stuff up. You bring you bring in new partners and, and uh, equity yep. partners? And stuff? Yeah, I decided not to fund it myself this time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lessons learned. Lessons learned.
0: Yeah, you know, and it's all about, you know, the t- industry, I think, and who you are. Because, I mean, I, I've i bootstrapped everything I've got so far. And myself and, and my wife and and, uh, and then, you know, a bank, right? But um, I'm not saying it's the best way. But for my businesses, many of them, I think it was. And, right. and some of my businesses nowadays, so we're just finally taking uh, money from somebody right now. And one of my businesses that grew from mm-hmm. no value to forty million dollars in value in about five years as a you know small business that one of my one of my leaders in my business, him and I spun out and a great idea and a great business, a little technology kind of maintenance business. But mm-hmm. anyway, so we just took on a fifty percent partner in that business and 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 cashed some in there, but. Uh, we're confident with this partner. We get to 100 million in a few years, right? 100 million valuation in a few years. So it's it's the right play. Uh, we also we, have, we also have one more company, Jeff. That's a technology company where in our industry we you know we became the leaders in paving parking lots and uh, roof maintenance in the region, but parking lots across the country by giving away pavement engineering. You know, right. Basically, hiring the best concrete pavement and asphalt pavement engineers. And then, and then giving those engineers kind of to our customers to look at their worst problems, right? The, the largest, you know, building owners in the country relied on us to do that for them. And so we grew nationally because of that giveaway, right? That that uh, mm-hmm. uh, that freebie kind of thing. But it was great. It was great information that they didn't have. They didn't have to pay for it. And then we were there to be one of the their many vendors, right? And they, they leaned towards us. Our relationships became strong because we gave them something other people didn't. Right and our knowledge base was stronger than our competition who relied on engineering companies to come and tell them what to do. Right. We weren't like that. So anyway, my son came in that business and 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 basically uh, you uh, said, we've spent a lot of money with engineers flying over the country. I can, I can solve our customers problems faster and we can, we can do it for way less money if we use drones. So basically, you know, he, he basically, him and our team uh, built uh, scripts for drones to fly Mm -hmm. by and then we used our expertise, our, 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 our strong engineering minds to help build the, the, the AI for these scripts then, right? So mm-hmm. today we've got a product that's leading the country and, and facilities assessment of, of conditions for pavements, roofs, facades um, HVAC doors and docks and many things outside of big building, Right. So that business though, now we, we, we haven't, I haven't taken on any outside money in this business either, but it's kind of going to be time. Right. Cause I can't, I can't fund it fast enough because I've got 11 little companies and this one's another one and I can't fund them all fast enough for the, especially, I shouldn't say this one specifically can't fund fast enough because the competition just raising stupid money to try and right. try and catch us, right?
1: So, so let me ask you this: Did you employ fewer engineers because of the use of drone technology?
0: The no, same? actually, actually we'll be hiring more because we still exactly. have still have consultive minded engineers that are, are for our customers. Now our engineers can be more consultive. Instead mm-hmm. of, uh, instead of mathematicians and, and, you know, counting cracks right in pavements or right. you know, counting you know, open seams and roofs. Right. So now there are more consultants helping our customers spend their money wiser. And we need more, we need more now.
1: Right. This We've is created. exactly yeah. why when people think, Oh, you know, a new technology comes and jobs are going to go. And you're like, no, that's not necessarily the case. And Gary, you're pointing out a perfect example, right? People would hear, Oh, the drones are doing the job now. The drones are doing the repetitive high volume tasks, the very low margin tasks. The human now can be much more efficient at doing what they're doing and therefore produce more and therefore economic activity and therefore economic growth and therefore more jobs. I'm like, this is what happens every time and why people think it's suddenly going to be different. Or all the jobs are going to go. I, I just don't understand it.
0: Yeah, Jeff. So perfect. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have to talk about this later on. I I, I hired a great CEO, uh, my son and I, so my son was running that company. Now my son, my my wife passed away about four, a little over four months ago. Mm -hmm. And so she had brain cancer. Thank you, but she had brain cancer. And, and uh, uh, I came home to be with her about a year and a half ago. So my son basically, my my board uh, basically told me my son was the best guy to, to take my spot. Now he was running that company, that technology company. And I didn't think he'd want to do it, but he did. So he took my spot and we had that seat open for a year. We finally found a CEO that's qualified to take this business to big valuation, right? And so we're, we're in a great place right now. But that, again, that business, like you just said, has created a whole other industry. It's, that industry wasn't even there before. It was, it was like the, uh, 2 or 3% of the properties where they had problems with their roof, problems with their pavements, problems with their facades. And they would call people to come out, experts come out and say, what's my problem, right? Now they can proactively look at a hundred percent of their properties because it's so inexpensive, right? So now you need more engineers, more, more consultive minds to run that, to to run this business. So it's been really a lot of fun to watch this thing. So I can't wait to see where it goes because we're now, we're, we're we're the leaders in facilities in this space, but we're also going after utilities and and like uh, cell towers and some Mm -hmm. other things, but really fun, fun, exciting stuff. But I want your, I would love to get your opinion on this uh, another conversation. Okay.
1: 100%. Cool.
0: All right. So, so, okay, back to this. So, so, uh, Salesforce, uh, you, you, how long did you have to stay on Salesforce? It was a pretty good deal. Then you made decent money. It was all, all yep. good for you. How long did you have to stay on board to, to uh, with, with that company before you can go to the next deal?
1: So I actually didn't stay aboard the other two people, the other two founders of it did. Uh, and they were there for, you know, standard kind of two years. Uh, I spent some time at a hedge fund, an activist fund called Barrington capital, which, The activist funds, for those who don't know, take larger stakes, you know, 5%, 10% in a business that they feel that management and other interests are not running in the interest of the shareholders. And they agitate for change. And so I still sit on the boards of directors of a few public companies from that experience, which was just amazing. Uh, And then in June of 2010, we started WorkMarket.
0: And what gave you this idea? Now, what, what, uh, how this popped in your head, and how this come about? so within a year time, within one year's time of being aboard this this Barrington Capital, you said, yep. okay, I got it, right.
1: Well, that. the business plan was going for Work Market from probably late 2008. We had really my co-founder and I had started really thinking about this. Here, here's where Work Market started for me, it started for me in business school when I read a paper by a Nobel laureate named uh, Ronald Coase. And Coase is well known for Coase's theorem, which is an entirely different thing. But in the paper, he wrote about why we have these things called corporations. What's the point of them? Why do we gather capital together, gather workers together? And what is the idealized structure of this concentration of resources? And his statement was the idealized structure is a very thin fixed cost kernel of executive leadership and a few other functions, and everything else should be done under a contract basis. He didn't use the term on demand, but that's what we would say is the on demand economy today. But his conclusion was that it couldn't be done. It was more efficient to have very large corporations with underutilized assets than it is to go and constantly spin up resources, get knowledge, train them, spin them down, and then keep whatever knowledge and customer relationships. More efficient to just have everybody be a full-time employee. Sure. And so that was the nature of the firm for 70, 80 years. And then things started to evolve as the technologies came on stream that lowered the transaction costs that made it more efficient to have people be a full-time employee than to be an on-demand employee. Because 40 years ago, in order to engage a new person, they got to fill out forms and then you got to come meet them in person and you got to do all these background checks. Everything needs to be done by paper or in person. Sure. And so as platforms started to emerge, as remote technology started to emerge, as databasing structures started to emerge, you can just go up oh, here, here are these six people, boom, ping them, boom, have them come in or have them fill out this form online and then have the algorithm tell me who's the best one. And then boom, that's my person. That massively reduces transaction costs, and therefore more companies start engaging on-demand workers. And so that had already started happening in by 2001 when I was reading this paper. And so I started to rewrite the paper. I actually got a thesis advisor at Harvard, and we sat down. I said, I'm going to rewrite Professor Coase's paper. And the thesis advisor was like, are you, though? That, that seems like an intellectual journey that you might not be ready for. And I was like, I'm going to do it. And, you know, three months later, I was like, yeah, I'm not doing this anymore. This is way too hard. <laughs> and so um, be that as it may, I always had this intellectual kernel around how do we help companies variableize more of their cost structures? Mm-hmm. Because clearly as a company, I want to have as few fixed costs as possible. Labor is by far the largest cost most companies face, and it is predominantly a fixed cost. And so, how do we variableize that? And then there was a study written by McKinsey in 2008 that talked about the on-demand economy and how globally there was one trillion in on-demand spend by companies, one trillion dollars for temps and freelancers. And that if companies had the systems and processes to engage on-demand labor at scale, that one trillion would become three to four trillion. And as you're as an entrepreneur, when you're trying to build a company, you try to solve big problems. When you're starting to use the T's, the T word, kind of a big one. Yeah, kind of a big one, kind (laughs) of a big one. So we (laughs) thought, all right, well, let's give companies the systems and processes to do this efficiently and compliantly. And that's what we set out to build.
0: Now uh that's that's uh, what a what a great uh what a great idea. I mean, and I and I see that in our businesses, of course, right? We're always looking at can we create some variable cost, right? Why does it all have to be fixed cost, right? And 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 actually as you as you know, we see in in small businesses, midsize businesses, right? When you have a tough any tough times, what are you doing? You're knocking out your fixed cost wherever you can, right? And, and, uh, and then you, you know, things get, get, uh, going strong again. You just add more fixed costs, more fixed costs, more full-time, more, more full-time, right. And, and when times get tough again, you've got this overhead that's, that's there again yeah. that you have to trim again. Right. So again, I love it. And I, our businesses that are most successful actually do some of this. I'm not saying we, we do, we're spectacular at it, but we do an okay job at it. In some of our business and some we're not so good at it. Right. The older, the older, I think, I think the opportunity is in my opinion, you, and you're going to tell me this is the case or not probably, but. Um, the old school businesses, we, we've been doing this way for 50 years, we ain't changing now, right? It's the old dirty businesses, in my opinion. I, that's what I kind of run, dirty businesses besides a couple of technology companies, right? And and uh, I'm confident that's those old school businesses where the opportunities lie the most probably.
1: And what, what have you seen? I would completely agree with that. You know, I have a good friend who built a massive company, sold it for a bazillion dollars. And all he does now is buy companies that he can tech enable, The old school businesses where the owners are like, Oh, I don't need this thing. I don't need that thing. And you know, for a long time they didn't, but now they do because they are getting competed against. They are having their margins squeezed. They're having their opportunities compressed because if you can't deliver all these services for less and less year after year, it is not a situation where you can just rely on the, you know, a local monopoly or relationships you should always rely on relationships to a great extent, but you want to be able to add value to those relationships by delivering things at a lower and lower cost. And so I think it is a great thesis and it is something that uh, there's, I know every private equity firm is thinking about how do we tech enable these businesses to expand margins.
0: hundred percent. And uh, so you, so you build systems, tell me about all that. The talk about the things you guys, that, that, that work market does or, you know, does to be great. So <laughs>
1: So, you know, we didn't invent people engaging on-demand labor. You know, the situation is that when I started the company in 2010, about 25% of the labor force worked in an on-demand capacity. And it had been that way, Gary, for 20 years. And it moves slightly up and down with the economic cycle because to your point, as times were good, people would convert their variable labor costs into fixed labor costs, convert their temps and freelancers to full-time workers. And then as times got bad, they'd show their full-time workers. And then when the green shoots would start showing, they'd just first tip their toe in the water by hiring more freelancers and temps, and then as the recovery solidified, convert them to full-time. Yep. So it had moved, the on-demand economy moved counter-cyclically with the economic cycles. And so when we came in, there was already billions, hundreds of billions of dollars in the United States being spent on on on-demand labor. But here's what would happen. A company, a very large media company, would come to us and say, look, we currently have 30,000 freelance writers and photographers, but we don't know who's where, who signed what legal agreement, who's working on what, who's good at what. And when we go to pay them, it takes us eight weeks to pay them just because... We got to get this invoice and then we got to get this. Now we got to put a PO number on it. We got to put a GL code and it's got to go to this person for approval. And it's got to go to accounting. I was like, wow, that's, that's terrible. People must not want to work with you. They're like, no, they really don't want to work with us because it takes (laughs) us forever to pay them. And we help them to use software, to use a marketplace so that they could just say, Hey, who wrote an article on Galapagos turtles? And instead of relying on the travel letter to be like, oh, Galapagos turtles, Um, that's Beth and Steve. Beth and Steve both write turtles for us. Now they just type in Galapagos turtles. Beth, Steve, oh, and by the way, there are six other people that also have written articles on turtles and Galapagos for you. And so Beth and Steve used to charge you 40 bucks an hour to do something. But here are all these other people that are equally qualified that are willing to spend, do it for 25 or 30. And so it helped them reduce by about 15% their spend because they got better visibility into all their resources. And by the way, it's a marketplace. So I put it out and I'd say, Beth, Steve, and Joanne and Fred, I need an article of Galapagos turtles. Who's willing to work for $30 an hour as opposed to, Oh, Galapagos turtles, it's Beth. And you just go to Beth and she charges you 40. I'm not saying Beth did a bad job. I'm just saying there is a lot of people that could perform that function. Let's look at them all. And give them sure. all an equal chance to win the business so we'd help them do that and then that would mean they could go from paying in eight weeks down to eight minutes if they choose to or at least in the 21 days that they told everyone they would get paid in
0: sure okay so i mean in the beginning and you know uh did you did you visualize the right potential buyers of this company from the start tell me about that and and the, and did you visualize the potential enterprise value from the start? And, you know, what what was your, what what were you looking at in 2010?
1: You know, how did you look at this as opportunity and and how are you going to expose it? The thing is, and it's a great question. It's something that every founder should be thinking about, right? Where am I taking this business? And it's something you should be very clear with your team about. And so I've become a very, very big proponent. And I'm going to tangent for a 2nd I'm going to get back. Um, I've become a very big proponent of the culture document, of codifying on paper and sharing with not only your entire team, but prospects, you know people that might join your team, this is who we are. And that document should be very clear. It should say who you are, right? What's that one sentence that says who you are, why you're here, what's the mission, right? Why should I get out of bed and come into work every day? And where are we going? And as the founder and as the CEO, that where are we going for you has to include, what is what are the outcomes here? And so, I actually, from the beginning of WorkMarket, had a list of who the potential buyers of WorkMarket were. And I made darn sure that I had a relationship with the corp dev people at those companies. And those companies, for a company like WorkMarket, were the large enterprise HR software companies. So, the WorkDays and the Oracles with PeopleSoft and SAP and IBM and the global staffing firms the ADECOs, the Ronstas, the Manpowers, the Allegis Groups. Those were the two different buyer sets. And so all of them, anytime they were in New York, anytime I was in their cities, they got a phone call. Anytime we were at any conferences and I saw they were there, they were hunted down whether they wanted to or not. And they were getting updates on what we were building and what we were doing. You're prospecting for future potential partners. I do that as a very important part of my job as uh, the well, founder that. of the business but i will tell you this adp was not on that list and so best laid plans uh adp yeah. approached us yeah but i, I gotta believe though your relationships
0: that you built with these other guys i mean the, the word was out there i'm sure uh, that that hey there's, there's these guys this guy's doing these this company's doing some great things and and you know not being invited to the party or, or, or wine and dine by them might have been might have been a, you know another reason why somebody gets involved with you and says man we got to, what how, who do we know knows this guy who knows this Jeff dude you know I mean well, I'm not I'm not sure but I I, I got to believe some of that goes on as you spread that network
1: to those potential buyers like you did that is very very true uh, what happened actually in this case if, if 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 you want the inside story I've never told this story. Well, oh, man, we you know, want it. it. We I've recording. never, never told anybody. I'm gonna tell you. I mean, I've told it to friends, but I never, never said it in a media context. So, look, I have the great, great pleasure of meeting so many entrepreneurs and uh, especially people in HR tech, right? Because that's where I was building a company. I'm an active angel investor in that space. And here's the thing: either venture capital friends of mine or venture capital firms that I'm an LP in will always send entrepreneurs to me, and they'll say, "Hey, you should talk to Jeff." because I will talk to any entrepreneur that needs help that's that's in my space that I actually could help them. But here's the thing, Gary, like I, there's no world in which in an hour conversation, I'm going to say something so insightful and help their business, right? If I say something after learning your business for 20 minutes that you didn't think of, you have bigger problems than whatever you came to me for. But what I can always do is say it's because you know, in the in the entrepreneurial world, you're constantly in that notion of every 18 months you got to raise money is I can introduce them to venture capitalists. And so I keep a very clear list of all the VCs that I have relationships with and what they invest in. And that list is very deep in HR tech. And so I read about a thing called ADP Ventures. I was like, oh my God, I didn't know ADP had a venture group. So I reached out to the ADP venture guy. I was like, hey, we should know each other. I see you know, companies all the time. And he emailed back, he said, ADP Ventures doesn't mean what you think it means. We're basically an internal skunk works. But Gary, to your point, he's like, but I know who you are. And I've heard your name at conferences. I've heard you give speeches. And I'd love to come over and talk. I was like, sure. Anyone can come over and talk. So he came by. I gave my whole song and dance on the future of work. I gave him a whole song and dance on work market. And, you know, we shook hands. And as people used to, you know, people used to shake hands. You know, a lot of people don't do that anymore. But uh, we shook hands. And I was like, all right, I'm never going to see that dude again. Like, whatever. He doesn't invest and. And he called me up a few weeks later. He's like, Hey, can I come back and bring a colleague and I want to hear your future work vision. I want to get a demo of work marketing. And I'm like, sure. i love to hear myself talk. So he came back with a colleague two weeks later. Can we come back? There were three of them a month later. Can we come back? There were five of them. And this went on and on. And he called me up once in this must've been because he, but they bought the company in 18. So this was probably in 17 calls me up. He's like, Hey, can we come back? There are going to be 30 of us. And it was something about the fact that it was 30. Cause I didn't have a room that could hold 30. And I mean, I, I needed to use our kind of event space. <laughs> and that means I had to book it. It was like a whole, I was like, what? No. He's like, what? No. I was like, no, you can't come. Like I'm done. I'm done with you. Quote. This is what I said to him. I will leave out the cuss word that I used. I said, go blank yourself. I don't know what I get out of these meetings. You just seem to be bleeding me dry for information. I seem to be educating everybody at ADP about the on demand economy and what's going on. I don't know what I get out of this. So no, I'm done with you. You can't come. And he's there's a long pause. He didn't say anything. He's like, Well, we wanted to talk about maybe buying work market. I was like, Oh, well then come on down. I'll dance any way you want. You don't do whatever you need. <laughs> and so, uh, we signed NDAs, uh, on that next trip and we started to dive real deep and, you know, we, they made an offer and, uh, we hired a banker, which they were not thrilled about. And then they had to increase their offer and, they're a wonderful acquirer. They're wonderful partners. Like I could not have asked for anyone better to have taken this company that I, you know, spent seven and a half years prior to their acquisition building. And they were, it was a great place to be for, uh, for two and a half years post.
0: That's awesome. That's just cool. Cause you know, and, and you just, you know, you just stated something there that everybody thinks about, right? Shouldn't everybody, anybody that's selling or thinking about selling thinks about, you know, you know do I need a banker? And you know, I've got friends that are bankers. Are you in YPO or anything like that?
1: Yep, yep. You are great organization.
0: Me too, man. Are you in New York? Out of New York. Metro,
1: Metro chapter in New York City. You know,
0: like, you, you know a guy named Aaron Block?
1: I do not. I do he's not. I'm not as engaged he's, in it as I should be.
0: He's a venture guy there in uh, in that market. Now he was my, he was he's one of my best friends. He was out of Chicago for a long time, and uh, just a great guy. He's got a he's got a uh, venture group that uh, builds uh, basically. Does seed investing in a lot of technology and uh, uh, anyway, really cool guy. You you, you got to meet him. So when we're done, you got to get Aaron Block's information because you don't like him a lot. You're you're kind of exactly. in, a similar, you're in a similar space, and uh, he's he's a he's a uh, champion networker in the, in your in technology. Okay, so back back to uh, what I was gonna say though. When we look at uh, you know buying, selling, or you know selling a business all that, you you need a you need a banker, right? And and this this deal we just did, I didn't use a banker only because the, the, the private we had a couple of people make offers on this business that I didn't know. And I, I told my partner, I'm not really that interested that, that the multiple didn't seem like enough. Anyway, I was, I didn't want to negotiate with somebody. I didn't even know at this point without hiring a banker. Right. And then, and then a friend of mine, um, who's, uh, who's, a, a, a he has a PE who's he's a major partner at, and I trust him hundred percent. He's a good friend. He said, man, you know, Gary, I, I, I saw that, you know, the business that, that, that you guys built in this space and we're, we're serving customers in that arena we would really love to look at it. I said, you know what, Jeff, you could look at it. I said, you're going to have to be north of, uh, you know, eight times multiple. And the, and the trading number was probably six times, uh, mm-hmm. before. And, but I, I, I didn't have any interest in song for less than, than eight. And, uh, anyway, bottom line is, uh, we ended up, we ended up doing the deal for about nine times multiple, but, um if i had a if we hired a bank we, we were after looking at this further we think we're pretty confident we could have got 11 or 12 even right but but i i, I wouldn't have the time to, to be part of it to search to make sure we had the right partner right. and my and my my partner probably would have done a fine job without me but he really he really wanted to do this deal with these guys too because he liked them so much so we probably sold it for a couple t- couple turns less than we should have but man we got a great partner and we're confident that this partner will get us to the you know, the, 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 next, the next bite of the apple is yeah. more, more solid and better than anybody else. So, you know, so it's like when do you hire a partner in your eyes, though, I've never hired a, a banker partner before to, to, to shop anything yet. But in the future, I probably
1: will. Tell me, your, tell me your thoughts on that. I will say that I did save the board, even though I was let go at J.P. Morgan as an M&A banker. I'm like, I've done this. Like, I don't need anybody's help. And the board of work market was like, hard enough. We're not even debating this with you. We're hiring a banker. Um, Look, the notion of a competitive marketplace that the banker creates, it's very difficult to argue against that, right? They're going to bring more people to the table. They have experience doing this. Do I think that they are overpaid for the value that they bring? Yes, I do. And so when you meet bankers that take that hard line, like, no, this is the market, this is the percent of the deal I need, I would walk away from those people. I think that you can find a two or three person shop that can do the job just as well, as long as they have an expertise in that area. Right. right. The important thing is that they were able to pick up the phone and get to those heads of corp dev. But as we talked about a few minutes ago, I already had all those relationships. Yeah. And so they didn't bring anybody new to the table and they ended up having ADP's price increase 35%. That was the end result. Okay. Right. Now, did they do it? Could I have done that on my own? Unknown. Unknown. We, we, we can't know how that would have played out if they weren't there. But uh, hiring the banker did push ADP to, to pay more. Like that, yeah. that, that is a statement I, I can't dispute. Sure. Sure. Good. Uh, so yeah, it worked
0: out. But that, that's, you know, usually you, you hire the banker first. You usually don't, you know, say, you know, we'll do, the, you know, we'll, uh, we'll do uh, we'll sit down and do a deal with you and then hire a banker. But that's worked out in your case. And I think uh,
1: that's something people can learn. That is, well, I will tell you this, I was at dinner with the president of, uh, of ADP who ended up becoming my boss and an unbelievably wonderful man. Um, and, uh, the head of corp dev and we were sitting in a restaurant and we still were getting to know each other. And I didn't realize what this, this dinner was. And they did this, they took a piece of paper and they slid it across the table. I was <laughs> like, what, what's that? Is that, is that the bill? I thought you guys were paying. You asked me to dinner and uh, they're like, no, that's our number. I was like, Oh, Oh, like, I, I like my heart was pounding out of my chest, and I picked it up and I was like, and I put it back down. They were like, That's it. I said, Guys, I am one person on a five person board of directors. I have a fiduciary responsibility, duty of care, duty of loyalty. And so I will bring your offer to the board. I mean, I wanted to go dance a jig, but like, it's inappropriate and not professional and probably not the best negotiating but, tactic. Well, I mean, yeah, the jig might have cost you a percentage at 35% too. No question. And so they, when I told them that we hired a banker and that everything had to go through the banker, they were furious, absolutely furious, right? They thought they had a deal and I, I, they didn't, sorry. They didn't think they had a deal because at no point did we say, all right, we're going to do this deal. I said, we'll consider it. And the response was we hired a banker. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They didn't want to hear that, but we understand why. And that's okay. Right. It worked out. So yeah. That's, that's awesome. Um, yeah. what a, It, it seems like such a great fit. I mean, we've had ADP in the past and we've got somebody else doing our stuff now in our businesses. Right. Um, but boy, that's a differentiator they could bring to the table to get a lot more business That it's, when, when they talk about competing against mom and pops market to market, man, that seems like a heck of a product to add to their portfolio. Right. And has it, has it gotten them a lot more work that they wouldn't have had otherwise?
1: Yes. Yes. Is the answer to the question, right? Like, look, is it fully integrated into the ADP product suites yet? All of them know, but ADP, look, it is one of the largest companies on the planet. People think of ADP as just a payroll company. They're actually one of the largest software companies on the planet. And they have 800,000 corporations that use their HCM software. And so it is making, doing something from a change standpoint within ADP is tough because anything new, need, you need to have a change management process for 800,000 companies. How many employees you? ADP has 52,000 employees. Man, it's a beast. One of the best dividend paying companies in the history of corporate America. One of the best leadership teams. I mean, not that I've met every leadership team in corporate America clearly I haven't, but I would, I would go to go to war with these folks any day. They're huh. just, they're good people. They're super smart. And they're, 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 they get, they get stuff done. Yeah, you can say shit. We do swear way. Okay. Well. All right, fair enough. I didn't know. You know it's, your, it's your house. I would. I never. You know. You never cuss until until the host. Till the, the host cusses. Especially shit. You don't shit in other people's house either. <laughs> fair boy. <laughs> but anyway,
0: that's a cool story. Um, okay, so now now we're yet, dude. What are you gonna do now? What what's, what what are you do with your time? boy wait, wait. I'm guessing you're retiring. You're mostly working on your suntan and uh, and your hair, different hairstyles.
1: Yeah, no, I'm going to work work on my my do. Um, I am, look, my day is divided right now into thirds. Uh, My first third of my day is is the book. You know, I do book tours and I do wonderful conversations like this. Actually, very few conversations as wonderful as this, but be that as it may. Um, The second third of my day are the companies that I advise or I'm on the board of. I still sit on the board of some of those companies from uh, the experience at Barrington. And that's real time. And it's, you know, there's a big problem, I think, in corporate America, especially public corporate America, with directors taking their responsibilities as seriously as they need to. And in order to be on a board, that's 300 hours a year of real work. And some people treat it as if it's just showing up to the meetings, but it's reading the voluminous amounts of data that come to you to be prepared to provide the governance that you're there to do. And then that next third of my day, and though it's the one that quite frankly doesn't get enough oxygen, it's thinking about what's next. I have a, another year uh, on a non-compete from ADP. And even though my attorneys and different venture capitalists who I've kind of talked about some of the ideas for my next company that I'm thinking about, have all said, oh, we could start the company now don't worry about it. We could do this, we do that. I'm like, no, absolutely not. I will not do anything that even sniffs of inappropriate to this team at ADP, they have been so good to me and so good to my company that there is a 0% chance that I will do anything until the day the day, day the non-compete expires. And on that day, I will go to them and I will present them with the business plan and say, this is what I'm doing. How do we do something together? How do we uh-huh. have a distribution deal? How do I, you guys should put some money in. If you don't put some money in, I'll give you some shares so that mm-hmm. we have a partnership. Like I yeah. want to be in bed with them because they're just, they're they're good people, and they they almost they just do the right thing by everybody at that company.
0: Awesome, uh, I, I think that's a great way to look at things. You know, I mean, and, and cutting your days into you know your time into thirds like that. Um, what are you gonna do in the book? To, so okay, so wait, wait. So let's talk about the book really quick. Tell me about you know the the, the concept of the book, the, you know, the kind of the summary, and and you know what inspired you there.
1: So what inspired? I'll start with what inspired me. What inspired me was frustration. <laughs> is that I'd go to these conferences and you'd listen to these thought leaders talk and you're like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Like that is a 0% probability of coming true to their predictions on the future of work. And specifically, there was a prediction that was all the rage in the world of HR and everybody would talk about it. And they would say the on-demand economy, which is currently 25% of the labor force in 2010, 2011, 2012, it's gonna be 50% by 2020. I would be like, 0% chance of that. Not going to happen. It's a ridiculous prediction. And so I started to write down why I thought it was ridiculous prediction, right? What is my, because, you know, if I'm going to have a point of view, I should defend it. What is the data? What is the evidence that I'm using to defend my point of view? And that began the journey of writing a book, which was, well, let's look at history. Let's look at the data trends and patterns. And let's look at how companies actually engage workers and deploy capital. Because if you're starting to think about things with that, those series of lenses, you can start to really put together a high probability vision of the world of work, whether it's the on-demand world of work, the remote world of work, or how robots and AI are going to impact jobs. Because in the very early stages of me finishing the book, as I morphed from the on-demand economy into the entire world of work, there was the 50% of jobs are gonna go in the next 10 years right? McKinsey predicts 50% of jobs, Price Waterhouse Coopers, Oxford University. That is not what any of those studies say. For those of us that spent their days reading through the Bureau of Labor Statistics and all these other reports that come out, which I don't recommend to anybody, uh, th- that is not what any of those reports said. But in our social media-driven world, somebody got that headline and it went out. And that is another area of frustration where you want to say, no, no. We need to be thoughtful. And that is what I hope people take away from the book, Gary, is that you can't paint the labor market with a broad brush. You need to think industry by industry, function by function, company by company in some cases, as you predict how their labor forces are going to evolve. And when you hear a new technology that comes on stream, do not jump to the simplistic conclusion that all jobs are going to go. And one of the examples I talk about in the book, and and uh, I'll kind of run through it if you'd like, is is the ATM. You know, when the ATM came out, everyone said, "Oh my gosh, every bank teller job in the United States is going to go." And over the next twenty five years, we had a twenty percent increase in the number of bank tellers employed in the United States, right? Not the nineteen ninety five, every single bank teller is going to go. That's not what happens. And the ATM, by the way, it's not even trying to disguise what it is. It's an automated teller machine, it's automating, it's a machine that automates the job of the teller. Like it's trying to remove the teller and it couldn't and it won't. But the complexity comes in that the number of bank tellers per branch did actually drop from an average of 21 down to 13, which is what we would tend to see when you see a machine that performs a lot of the component tasks of a job is you see some job losses, but the number of bank branches in the United States nearly doubled. And thus we ended up with more bank tellers and it nearly doubled because of the Glass-Steagall repeal. And so the point of the anecdote is just to say, this stuff is really complicated and you can't just say, oh, ATM is just bank teller jobs go maybe, but let's really dive in and let's look at this industry. Let's look at the competitive environment. Because if I walk into a chase branch and there's no one to greet me with a lollipop, and to say, how you doing? And everything else, they're just a bunch of machines. But I walk into city and they say, how are you, Mr. Walt? It's lovely to see you. We have some lollipops. I'm probably going to city, right? I'm not going back to Chase. Like the competitive like you your lollipops. My main point here is that I really enjoy lollipops. <laughs> that is actually my main takeaway. <laughs>
0: and okay, so, so in your book, then it's basically all about that. It's all about labor yeah. and, and the change in labor, right? Yes. Um, well, give us the, the, the title of your book again.
1: It is The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. End of Jobs. Yep. Yeah. And it was super, look, I would say it was super fun to write because it was super fun. It's very difficult to write a book. It's cer- certainly difficult to write a book while you're building a company. Uh, and so I am high. you know, you got to create leverage where you can. And so half of the book is actually predictions by other people. And so chapter 10, which is my favorite chapter, is something I call the Future of Work Prize. Um, I have the pleasure of being an advisor to the X Prize on their Future of Work initiatives. And so I kind of copied them. And I said, you know what, let me get 20 different people, 20 men and women that are actually shaping the future of work, leaders of the largest staffing firms, leaders of the largest labor unions, leaders of the largest companies in the executive suite. And let me ask them what they think the world of works looks like in 2040. Mm. And so I said, you can do it any way you want, right? However you want, whatever angle you want, I'm not going to edit it for content. And we actually got 40 people that ended up writing, uh, and we selected down the best 20 that went into the book.
0: Wow. That's cool. All different, um,
1: all different views or visions, right? Very, very different. I mean, we have the labor leaders that are very dystopian about how the world's going to look and workers are totally screwed in 2040. We have some business leaders that are very much of the utopian future where robots and AI are taking all our mundane tasks away and it's a world of abundance and this and that, which is a world I, I tend to believe that one more. And then I've got one writer that basically wrote that everything's going to kind of be the same. Little changes here, little changes there, but for the most part, same stuff, different day.
0: Yeah. So, we'll see. I I, 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 t- I tend to lean, lean with him, but uh, you know that's just me. Um, are you part of Abundance 360 then? I am not. So it's a group not. Is, that, uh, is that
1: Peter 80s? Yeah, yeah. So I've, yeah.
0: I've been part of that um, here and there. It's been you
1: know fun being around that that world. I heard he him speak once and was blown away. This was before I became an advisor to the president I haven't met him in that context, but. His look, it from a pure data standpoint, and I think maybe 2020 took a step back, but in 2019 is when I heard him speak. There has never been a better time to be a human alive than it was then. And we'll take a little dip down in 2020 and we'll be right back to it. But in terms of abundance, and in terms of safety, in terms of health we're doing great as humanity. Now, we have some existential threats and problems and things, but I am 100% believer in humanity's ability to solve those things with the market's ability to solve them. And for entrepreneurs to create the new technologies and other things that will avert whatever kind of incremental pandemic, other pandemic we may have, whatever kind of climate issues we may have, whatever kind of other issues we may have, very big believer in technology's ability to solve and entrepreneur's ability to solve
0: hundred percent. And that's, that's my passion, right? I'm a very passionate free enterprise guy. Cause I, I believe entrepreneurs can solve you know, all the problems really. The government's not going to solve these problems. They, it does. It never has. It never will. Right. Bureaucracy can't solve these problems. It's, it's these, it's these, uh, uh, aspirational thinkers that know there's a, there's a, there's a, a solution for every problem. Right. And again, that's, that's what I love about our country, that we have, we have more of those than anywhere else in the world. We got to make sure we nurture those. Right. So completely kind of, kind of how I think. Right. And, and I, I believe because I, I've been around some amazing entrepreneurs, been blessed to, 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 to be part of some solutions, our own, for our own customers that have been pretty fun to, to, to help create. Right. And then besides that, I've been blessed like you to just be around lots of, lots of uh, you know, innovative thinkers that build businesses and build jobs um, and usually not because they're, they're selfish and they want to make a bunch of money right? The best minds, the most successful minds are those that want to solve problems and create abundance of, of, of success for other people. Right. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that's the most fun when, you know, when we talk about entrepreneurship, is those that and, and the best entrepreneurs definitely don't say, what's in it for me. How do I make millions of dollars? Right. That doesn't happen. I, I don't it care. Not happen. Happen. And it's just a matter of if you're a problem solver, you need to be an entrepreneur. If you love, if you love serving, you need to be an entrepreneur because that's where you're going to, you're going to, you're going to have your best, you're going to, you're gonna create your best self.
1: Amen. I mean, look, I have tried to encourage everybody at work market, uh, you know, a few hundred employees, I would love nothing more for them to all leave and start their own businesses at some point. And we tried to build the environment that they could learn in and the people that excel because look, it's not for everybody. We didn't hire perfectly and nobody ever does. And I would I remember would say to team leaders every now and again, I'd be like, wait a minute, you haven't let you've hired 40 people over the last year and you've let nobody go. He's like, yeah, I'm like, so you think statistically, you hired 100% perfectly. So you would be absolutely anomalous. You're in the point, oh, 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 oh 1% of talent discerners. That's ridiculous. You need to let three people go because you didn't hire perfectly. There are people that are performing incredibly suboptimally, just statistically, it's just yeah. statistically impossible that you hired perfectly. The point being is that we had some great people. We had some people that were just wanted to be there and learn. And we had some people that needed to go and we moved them out. But the people that really wanted to be there and learn and develop, when people ask me what I'm most proud about at work market, I start rattling off names like Ryan Ballard and Caitlin Mann and Liz Sue and Caitlin McCormick and and Michael Schwartz. Like Those are the people that came in and they said, I really want to learn and work. And now their careers are just through yeah. the roof, through the yeah. roof. And it's the best. It's like, yeah, de- developing.
0: Their- Developing people and 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 you know sharing experiences of yours and others that can make people more valuable for themselves, right? That's so much fun. So in my in my businesses, our small businesses, Jeff, you know, we've got businesses that are a few million and, and start kind of you know, recently startups, and then we've got businesses that are a little more mature, 50, 60 million that are mid sized companies. We don't we don't have huge companies, but we, you know, we intend to grow some of them before we let's say sell them or do whatever to bigger. But the fun thing is. Over the course of the time, I've had many, many people leave me to go off on their own to, to, to seek out the, the American dream. And, and it's because I talk about it all the time to all my teammates who said, hey, I want you to be entrepreneurs. I want you to think outside the box. I don't care if it's the first day on the job where you've been here for 10, 20 years. I want you to constantly think about what differentiates you, right. what differentiates us from the competition. And if you differentiate you on a constant basis, you're going to figure out how to differentiate us. And, and you know, we want to be the best in the world. What we do. And so what happens is, I, and I talk about the, the, the beauty of entrepreneurship and starting, you know, from, from where I started with really nothing in the beginning uh, to where I'm blessed to be today. Or, uh, but, but what happens is I get my, my leaders in my business will come to me pissed off sometimes. They'll be like, Gary, you know, Sam left us. Sam was so valuable. He left us. I can't believe it. you. You got to quit talking to these guys about entrepreneurship. Right. I said, Sam is going to do awesome. Sam is, he's a great guy. He's my good friend and I, I, God bless him. I hope he does amazing. And I I think he's going to. Sam three and a half years later sold the company that he founded for six hundred and fifty million dollars. All right, to to Kellogg. He sold the Kellogg, right? And I and I was ha- when he left, I said, Sam, you're awesome. I don't want to lose you, but I knew you're an entrepreneur from the start. You know, he was with me for only like four years. And, and, uh, and Sam was actually one of my podcast stories too. But but again, I've had I've had that's the biggest and the best story of all, right? Of an entrepreneur that went that's off and awesome. did stuff. Uh, He's now on a you know going after a second uh, second deal right now. But either way, I've got many stories like that where these these people have gone off and done their own thing and been successful, and it's so much fun. But the real fun is selfishly when they stay on board and I spin off a company with them, right? Such as the one I did, I told you about a little while ago is is led by a great entrepreneur that was an engineer, civil engineer, and with an MBA, and him and I him and I went into business together and, and spun out a company from ours. And that business is the one that's uh, the technology maintenance company, PipeView America. But, but I've been, I've, I've like four other companies that are led by entrepreneurs all built within our group of companies. Right. So it's kind of fun when they, when they stay, unfortunately they're not all going to stay because I can't keep up with, with them. Right. They're going to, they're going to find their own thing. They're the paving or roofing and all the things we do
1: aren't always going to be their passion. Right. But that's, you, I, mean, I mean, it's the old adage, right? You want to hire somebody that wants your job. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you don't want somebody that's just sitting there and punching the clock. And if they want to punch the clock, there are plenty of places for them to go. Yes. And I I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's just it's not what I want in my organization. It's clearly not what you want in your organization. And I would argue it's not what any of your listeners want in their organizations. And it's important to constantly be going through and seeing who is ready to step up. And you have to give them the opportunities and you have to support them right? Like it's one thing to say that you want to do it. It's another to put in place the policies and the procedures to enable it, sure. right? To give Cause if you're just saying, Oh, I believe in that. But if your people don't believe that you believe it, if your people don't see the thing where they can take a course at night and the company will support them where they could leave earlier, you know, for a while in order to take a class or to have a, a mentor lunch, then you're not really supporting sure. them. Right. You need those policies and procedures.
0: Well, and that same attitude, right? Jeff is one that we, that I live by. I mean, if I see any of my leaders lead our businesses so that they're, you know, second tier, first tier leaders, when that, when they're intimidated or bothered by somebody that's questioning the status quo or bothered by somebody like that's way, you know, that's, that's probably maybe smarter than them or works harder than them. Right. That's always like a big question mark in my head. Are they the right leader? Right. The best leaders are searching for people better than themselves. Right and finding that number two that, you know, the hit, hit by bus theory or, 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 Hey man, for us to grow, I need somebody stronger than me to, so I can go on to the next thing. Right. And so, again, when you find those leaders and and we we really strive, I think we have most, I mean, if not all leaders like that in our businesses today, um, then, then you, then you've got a a business that's going to abundantly grow because they're always going to seek, seek out people for the best interest of our customers, you know, Mm -hmm. leaders, leaders for the best interest of our customers and the team instead of their own self-interest. And, and I think that's where, you know, bureau, uh, bureaucracies are, are, are troubling, right? Where you, know, you get a bureaucracy and they got that leader that's protecting that, their job, his or her job, and they're intimidated by that person coming up that, that's maybe smarter, better, faster than them, right? And boy, that's a terrible thing. And unfortunately, when I look at government, as I'm looking at forward right now, is potentially, gov- well, not potentially, I'm going to run for governor in Illinois announcing in a few weeks. But as I look at that, Jeff, I mean, boy, it's so abundantly clear that. So many of these people are there to protect their jobs and serve the special interests instead of the, instead of the community. Right. And it bugs that hell out of me when I see this over and over again, it, it, you know, people are career politicians and uh, you know, I think a career politician could think like we're talking, but unfortunately, very often they don't right They're there to protect their job and get reelected and, and serve, serve their special interests instead of the, the taxpayers of, of, the, of their, their community. Right.
1: So one of the things that I'm thinking about next, it's not going to be my next thing, but uh, Harvard has this wonderful saying where you should divide your life into thirds, where your first, third, you're learning. Second, focused just on learning. You mm-hmm. obviously should be a lifelong learner. Second, third, you're focused on earning. And your third, 1st third, third, you're focused on serving. And mm-hmm. I don't think I'm done with earn yet, but mm-hmm. um, I'm thinking about how I want to serve. And I will tell you that, when I think about the issues that we have here in the United States, and and they are many fold, I think about the election process. I mean, Gary, I'm sure, you know, just as many elected officials as I do. and, And they're, they're wonderful people for the most part. You know, I know people that have very different points of view than me. And we sit down, we have dinner together and we talk about things and they're brilliant. They're thoughtful. They want to be inclusive and have other points of view, but their job doesn't allow them to because they are held accountable to 2% of the electorate, that 2% that votes in a primary and they know it. And so if we think we're going to get better people to come in and that solves the problem, maybe, I mean, people like you running is what America needs, right? They need people to leave the private sector, come serve their country, and then go back to the private sector and become a career politician. And so I think about the election reform necessary, whether it's around districting, whether it is so we can, whether it's around open primaries or nonpartisan primaries, so people are actually held accountable to the majority of people in their district.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Those are the, and term limits, by the way. Like, 100%. how do we get, because I don't think the founders had in mind a permanent political class. I think they had in mind people coming out of industry, coming out of farming, coming out of the community. To serve the community and they, then going back. Yeah,
0: because they knew there's no money in this gig, right? I mean, they, they want to get back to work. Hey, I'll do this for a little while, but I can't afford to do
1: it for too long. There's nothing here, dude. I mean, there's no money here. So oh, but had, yet they the current politicians managed to find money in a whole host of places.
0: Well, and then he did, right? I mean I many did, but that wasn't the concept of, of what a what a politician was back then. 100 percent Statesman, you're gonna go be a statesman, you're gonna serve, and you're gonna get back to the farm, get back to get back to whatever you're doing, right? And so Either way, and I, I think the network of, of politics is pretty big. I mean, anybody who runs for government meets a ton of people. I, I think it's a great spot for somebody young, somebody middle aged, or old, depending on the, you know what what point of their life in. But hey, it could be a kid that says, "Man, I want to want to build a network once I get out of college, and I'm going to I'm going to run for something, right?" Or it could be a middle aged person that's that stay at home mom that that's got an MBA that, that their kids are now. Off and she says, you know what? I, I I think I want to get involved and she jumps in. Right? They get a salary, they get a, they get a 401k or whatever, and then they're then they're back in, their, in the in the in the regular world after eight years with a great network. Yeah. Or it could be a guy like me that I mean I I've I've been blessed to be to 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 have some fun in, in, in entrepreneurship. I've had I've had fun serving my customers and, and my teammates and 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 you know great results happen right. And now it's time to serve hopefully a bigger community and and then but I don't want to do this for long. I, don't, I don't want to do it for you know, if I do it for eight years, that's great. I'm going to, I'm going to say, Hey, term limits for me, for sure. Eight years, and yep. I'm out I'm a pension. Don't want to, don't, don't want any part of this as far as income. I want to make sure that uh, I'm here to serve hundred percent. Then I want to get the heck out back to business. Right now I'm, I'm going to be an old guy by then, but, uh, but I'm still going to, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to act like a young guy anyway. Uh, but either way, I think that well, I, I won't be that old compared to the, what we, who we elect for presidents in the last couple of times. And, and, we, yep. and speak. To, I actually will still be a young guy after, you know, when I get out in eight years. So but, but either way I, I want to inspire others really inspire others to say I, I want to do that for for a couple of terms and I want to get out I I'm, want I'm to be a, I, don't want, I want to be a servant-minded legislator that, that that is focused only on the community the the taxpayers of, of my taxing taxing body right and if, and if we could do that and you could say I, I, I under oath I, I will not take any any pension or anything that's unsustainable I don't want it um, and, and I'm, and I'm going to serve, you know, two terms or eight years max and I'm out. Um, and I'll, and I'll vote against all things that are conflict of interest to in my position. Right. If those three things, if they did that and they, and they, and they, and they swore to that, boy, that, that could be a cool, a cool new party. could I don't care if you're de- left yeah. or right, left, right, center. I don't care. Right. All I care about is if you're there sincerely to serve, boy, I want you and I want to listen to you.
1: Right. I agree. Look, I have policy differences with a bunch of, people on both sides of the aisle with different elected leaders but the people that are there fully to serve right to protect and defend the constitution i can get behind you and look i was not a fan of the last president because of this but i still rooted for him he's the captain of the ship i'm on the ship i I want him to be successful absolutely um but i want somebody there that is every day waking up thinking about these 330 million people or in the state, yeah, in a or just or just somebody there
0: that wakes up, that that, that actually is awake sometimes. <laughs> and fair as enough. they get as we, as they get to be in their you know closer to 80s, they're probably not going to be as awake as we'd like them to be. You
1: know, so it is fair either,
0: either way. It I mean, is- you know, in a job, do we have many CEOs that are 75, 80 years old? I'm not saying there's not some great ones because there are, right? It's just not the norm. And and boy, you know, we should we should be thinking about you know age limits and these political roles, in my opinion. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, look, I'll say this. I am right now working with a guy named Ray McGuire who is running for mayor of New York City. And Ray, you know, built himself up from nothing and became one of the most powerful people in finance as, as uh, vice chair of Citigroup. And he now is saying, you know what, I want to serve my city in this time of tremendous need. I mean, New York City is, you know, is on, is on the back foot right now yeah. for a host of reasons. And the thing is is that if there were a job interview as to who is the most qualified to be the chief executive officer of a hundred billion plus budget, yeah. right? Like it is a massive entity, New York City. And, and you put Ray against all the other candidates? I mean, nobody would get a second round interview. All of the us, yeah. they're nice people and I know some of them, but Ray is a country mile more qualified than any of these people. And, you know, he hopefully will win. We obviously, you know, have no idea yet, but uh, it shouldn't even be close that Ray is willing to go do this to leave millions of dollars in annual compensation to maybe yeah. 10 plus whatever he's making to go and serve. We should be so lucky. And so yeah. we'll see. But it, the love, process is me, not a job. I'd love
0: to meet me, Ray sometime. Uh, Absolutely. And, uh, and, and uh, is, is this uh, coming up in 2022?
1: this is the elections in june the democratic primary is june 6th this, i believe this and june then, yeah, yeah and then the general elections in november but the democratic primary will be who who is the next mayor i think is if history has any guide to that unless yeah. mike bloomberg wants to run again in which case i would support him because huge fan
0: yeah well that's uh, that's interesting i love, love to meet ray all right, man. Well, Hey, um, I, I think we, we, we got a lot, uh, we squeezed a lot of juice out of this, uh, this orange, didn't we, Chris?
3: Oh, oh yeah. This, this was on a whole nother level.
0: But <laughs> what, what, uh, you know, so, so Chris, uh, grab some takeaways here for us, Jeff, so that we can kind of think about the things we learned, the lessons we learned, the, the, the fun uh, nuggets that, that created your success that we can share um, or maybe some, some uh, nuggets we learned on uh, some, some of the failures that, that propelled you forward too. Right. So wait on us, Chris, what do you got, brother?
3: Yeah. Got oh man. I, I, I was furiously writing everything that I could. Um, it, it sounds like, uh, it's probably a good idea to give potential founders a personality test before you. Yeah, invest uh, every cent you have to your name. Um, sounds like that was a, a very valuable and, uh, and and painful lesson to learn. Um, but uh, it's it's clear you you came out on the the mega positive side of, of that situation. Um, thanks thanks for sharing that. Um, I, I loved your your comment on how ATMs were supposed to replace uh tellers 25 years ago and <laughs> and now there's uh 20 more tellers um I, I thought that was awesome um i, I did want to sneak in one one question that that i had because um in my own in my own business I, I have uh 10 10 people that that work uh with me um Nine of them are variableized. One, only one is fixed. Um, can you just kind of briefly or, or give us your take on the the unintended positive and negative consequences
1: of variableizing your entire labor force? So great question. And there are a lot of unintended positives and negatives, and there are just intended positives and negatives. The first thing I would say, Chris, is that. It's difficult with anything labor-oriented to paint with a broad brush. There are some industries and some job functions that works incredibly well. And so, broadly speaking, if I had to to take that step back and paint with a broad brush, there's institutional knowledge that an on-demand team is less capable of capturing. There are client relationships that the on-demand team is less capable of transferring and bringing to the house, right? You want those things to be house accounts, not reliant on a person and and i think about the complexity of business process the more complex a process is right we have to do this thing then this thing this doesn't this, the more difficult it is to do with an on-demand construct because those people aren't bought into the process they haven't ramped up on the process and they're not going to stay in the process and therefore a new on-demand resource has got to learn the process and so it lends itself to ramp up time intellectual property and the complexities of intellectual property with an on-demand team And the last thing I'd say, and this kind of goes to this business complexity, because we can unpack that for an hour, is the more you can break the work down into its component parts, which is a very big theme in the world of work right now, the atomization of work into its component tasks. The more you can have those tasks done by people, then the tasks re-aggregated into a project or into a deliverable and sent off. And so the business process itself, And can it be done in a series of tasks? If it can't, you can't on-demand labor that, right? Like you won't see a lot of large corporations from a business process standpoint, from an intellectual property standpoint and all these other things, move to an on-demand labor context, which is why that 25% prediction in 2010 was so ridiculous. Companies move very slowly and thoughtfully. What actually ended up happening from 2010 to 2020 is we had a 3% market share shift. It went from 25% on demand labor to 28%. It took 3% from the full time workforce, mostly from temps, not from freelancers. And so the slow and steady movement, and importantly, the regulatory construct. And I'm sure Gary has some points here around two individuals just having a free market transaction between themselves should be fully allowed, but it isn't. And the idea that we're going to have a f- free A fundamental shift in the labor regulatory structure in the United States is laughable. It will never happen in the near term or the medium term. It is too complicated for them to rewrite FLSA. Should they? 100%. Will they? No. And so you are going to be stuck with a regulatory construct. And as the company gets bigger, that becomes the biggest problem companies face. And so in my 10 years of running work market, I never once... Never once met the company that took their W-2, their fixed labor force and transitioned them to a non-demand labor force. I never met that company, but I have met the company a hundred plus times that had a large on-demand labor force that maybe used our software maybe was thinking about using our software. And after a journey said, ah, we're uncomfortable from a regulatory standpoint, we're going to turn everybody into W-2s and we'll deal with the cost. That meeting I've been in about a hundred times. The meeting of, We want to think about going down this road. That meeting I've been in, but that meeting has always led to, nope, we're not doing it. Hmm. Right? So those are things to be aware of is that the business processes, the intellectual property, the ramp up time, and then the regulatory construct are all very, very industry specific, job function specific, and they end up driving a lot of the unintended positives and or negatives. Hmm. So I hope that was helpful.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's that's fascinating. It's uh, it, it's almost the opposite of what you would expect, what, what everyone's worried about.
1: These are the realities of what's going on in the on-demand labor force, not the, oh, it's going to continue growing by leaps and bounds, and oh, this thing. It's just, this is what happens on the ground when CHROs and heads of legal and heads of purchasing departments are making decisions about labor resource planning. People have this thought that, you know, labor resource planning meeting happens this way. What should we do with our labor? Screw them, get the cheapest ones. Okay, good, done. Yeah. That's actually not how that meeting goes. No. No. <laughs> so you have to think about these things when you're going to make predictions. And I would say that people that are out there in the public square making predictions about the future of work that have impacts on families. On communities, on companies, on societies have the responsibility to make the predictions based on the evidence and not just hear themselves talk. Yeah. Because, you know, I think about there are a lot of jobs in the United States that actually are massively undersupplied truck drivers because people sit there and they hear experts saying, oh, all the trucking jobs are going to be gone in the next 10 years because of autonomous vehicles. Absolutely not, not even close. We will have absolutely. more truck drivers in ten years.
0: Absolutely not, and and it, all over in the skilled uh, workforce, we're we're lacking. Right, And, and I've, I've got a plan that uh, that I'm going to throw across the bow, and when, when we when we in this governor's race, but you know, like you, Jeff, I'm blessed to be friends with a lot of CEOs all over the Chicagoland area and all over the country. And when I talk to them about would you do this, they all said I mean, all. I mean, I would say that almost all of them say absolutely. And it's basically, would you would you build would you take your leadership force? Would you mentor? in the urban environments. And would you then hire kids out of high school to jump in your skilled tra- training and skilled roles? Okay. And I'm telling you right now, 90% of my friends YPR say, absolutely. Some mm-hmm. of my friends hire two 3,000 people a year. You know, we hire 150 people a year, right? But, and I'm willing to take 20% of my workforce and hire from this, this environment. My friend that hires 25 100 to hundred to 3,000 a year, he says he would do it. So that's Five, four or 500 people a year, right? That, that he would hire from this environment. Only though, if we're able to basically go down there, inspire these kids, understand who really wants the job in my industry, which is uh, pays well, or my friend's industry that pays a little less than mine, but but well, great opportunity. And here's here's my concept. I am very confident, Jeff, that I could I could promise these kids if they find an industry out of these, let's say 100, 100 CEOs, 100 businesses they like, and they pursue it, they will make a hundred, they will, they'll make 50,000 or more by 24. Okay. In my industry, Jeff, they'll make 70 to a hundred thousand by 24. Okay. With great benefits. And we can't find enough skilled people. I mean, and so we have, we have these urban environments where we have got all this violence, all, all this stuff going on. And yet, you know, th- these kids, in my opinion, can't see outside that environment, the a vision of, of success somewhere. Right. So I'm very confident if we if we go to there and I've actually got com, I've got conversations with friends of mine that run the black black CEO network in Chicago, about 120. And to together we're trying to work on a plan. And so again, I believe the private sector can solve this problem. It doesn't take government to solve this problem. Or I say solve it, right? But it's going to cure it by, in my opinion, 70, 80%, which would be a huge difference in, in the in the violence and the and the murder and all the all the all the stuff that's going on in these terrible environments. Have you ever seen
1: the show Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe? Of course, I love Mike. Yeah, I, I I just saw a video that of I think it was on PBS. Somebody sent it to me of what he does in terms of taking kids and giving them you know uh, apprenticeships and all these other things to get them into trades where they're making beyond a middle class wage, yeah. and it was I was I I was blown away by this, this gentleman. I, I, I heard of the show, I never watched it, and I watched this video, that guy is doing amazing, amazing work for the people of the United States because there are huge skills gaps. There are Absolutely. huge numbers of jobs available that are great jobs, but well, we're trying to push everybody just, you gotta go to college, you gotta go to college. For some people, sure, but for everybody, hard no. And we say to people, if you don't get into college, you're a failure, well, no, that's ridiculous. There are great jobs that are available today and we are just not putting the right incentives in place. And we are stigmatizing these jobs. A the electrician being a plumber. Great job. Great living. I've got, I've got nine of my 11 companies that are
0: the old school businesses that, that don't get the respect that from a kid going to, you know, going to college. I mean, a kid in high school, they don't say, man, someday you could be a paving guy or a girl, right? Or so you could you can do roof maintenance, Right well, guess what? These jobs actually pay well. The technology is very high nowadays. The labor labor is nothing like what it used to be when I was a kid, right? I mean, I can, you, know, you know, it sounds like an old guy, old guy that, that I am, right? But bottom line is our technology is exciting as heck. I mean, we use 3D technology for, for most of the stuff we do in the field. It's really cool nowadays. And again, but but I'm not down there inspiring these kids to come, come look, you know, consider working in my businesses, and I'm not showing them the path, right? And I'm not telling them, I, I wanna I didn't go to college. right? I barely made it through high school. So for me, my my thing is, hey, I'm an example. I'm a dumbass man, and I'm. I, I became pretty successful just through hard work in these dirty businesses. You know, you can too. And so, I, 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 I and I have been in in the inter, you know in these areas like you know trying to inspire some groups that I'm part of, but not enough. And we need more of that, in my opinion. We need more more people to gain take their executive teams and do that. So so I you're you'll you'll be on my
1: team when I do that. Is that right? Is that what I'm getting? Hundred percent. Hundred percent. I will tell you. I'll I'll leave leave it with with this story. I was sitting on a stage with these you know entrepreneurs. I was a founder of this thing and that thing, very well known companies. And I was like, I don't know why I'm on this stage, but they said, What is the most important thing that you, you do every day? And I it really kind of honed in on leadership and what it means to be an entrepreneur as I sat there because I went last. And the first person said, You know, provide the vision for the company. I was like, yeah, all right, that's important. Second person said, You know, recruit the team. Yeah, no, of course, recruit the team. Very important. Third person said, talk to customers. Yeah, no, customers without a boo. How customers, you know, the business. Uh, And the fourth person said, raise capital because, you know, startup land, if you don't, if, you know, cash is oxygen, you run out of it, you're dead. And it got to me, and I was like, those are all super important. And I'm not saying they're not, but the most important thing I'm going to do on any given day, plunge the toilet. Because if I don't do it, nobody will. (laughs) And if you think that being an entrepreneur was all the glamour and the glitz, and you're going to be waving to Richard Branson on your private island one day, that's 0.0000001% probability. The high probability is you're going to be doing the dirty work that nobody wants to do. And if you don't do it, nobody will. And that's what it means to be an entrepreneur.
0: Yeah. if you, if you do it, people will respect it and want to do it as well. Right. That's the key. I mean, if you're willing to do what you're asking them to do, they're going to do it with a, with a, with a lot more positivity than if you're pointing the finger and saying, I ain't doing that, but you are right. I mean, that's craziness when you lead, like that's not leadership, as you know, Okay, good. So I got you. I got you in, Chris, make a note of it. Jeff's on our team when we do, uh, we, it's called the executive leadership track. Okay. Where we take kids up from high school and we actually, you know, get them internships in high school also, right. Junior, senior high school, they're coming out in the field with all the right safety stuff on, they're learning the business and they can say, yeah, this is what I want to be. I want to be a paving guy or girl. Right. Or, you know what? Hey man, this is what I would be, but that medical supply company where I can sell medical supplies right out of high school. That's cool. And I think I'm here and I can make a lot more money and boy, I can, see, I can be in, a, in front of a computer anywhere doing that. That's what I want. But anyway, it gives the kids the, at least the vision that there's something more than what they see in front of them. Unfortunately, this is what I, this is why we've got so much, so many problems in our, in our urban environments, because these kids aren't, aren't getting any, you know, you and I, either we're, we watch somebody that we, we, we said, wow, that's cool. I want to be like that. Or, or we somehow create, you know, had a vision uh, uh, through through some type of experience that, that gave us this vision of why we could be successful, why we're gonna we're gonna work hard and, and do something spectacular, right? And, and these kids all need that same vision. You know, they, 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 there's there's nobody that that can't be served with some mentorship, right? So, yeah. it'd be fun. So Chris, what else did you get out of, this, uh, out of this stud? I mean, how much time you got,
3: brother? Um, I'll, I'll just, I'll share uh, uh, two two more great takeaways that, that I really enjoyed. Um, only hire someone that wants your job. I thought that was profound and I don't think I've been doing that enough. Um, so definitely gonna expand on that. Um, and, and my my final one I'll leave you with uh, convert your life into thirds uh, one third learning one third earning and and one third serving and I think that if that's the only thing you take from this entire episode I think that your time was very well spent.
0: Yeah, I I loved it and you know the other thing I I really liked is your is your. Um ambition to actually prospect for future potential partners. And that, you know, I think that's huge in any business. I don't care how, how big your business is, you know, if, 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 and, and how valuable it might be someday, um, that, that building relationships with potential buyers get, gets you focused on, on on, on, on what you want to be and
1: what, and what they're looking for you to be. So that was awesome. I would say, if you know where you're going, you have a higher probability of getting there. Yeah. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) Well, I'll
0: tell you what, Jeff, I really appreciate your time today, brother. And uh, if you're ever great. in Chicago, you got to look me up. You golf at all? You look like an athlete.
1: Um, I played golf for the first time in 20 years, two days ago. Dude, you're an athlete, though. You can pick it up in a heartbeat. I literally, I got a par on a par five and the person taking me out was like, you've never played? I'm like, no, never played. I mean, I played when I was a kid, but that was it. So I would very much look forward to, uh, to hanging uh, anytime soon.
0: Okay, you come to Chicago, you got to come and see us and uh, we'll get you out and uh, to our golf course or we'll, we'll take you out and hang out.
1: And you can you would be a blast. And I, there's so much you can learn. And then I, and, I, also, uh, I will host a fundraiser for you uh, with everybody I know in Chicago. That, that awesome, will be my buddy. first trip. That will be but, my first trip.
0: That would be awesome, man. I appreciate that. I'm going to make a note of that too, buddy. So don't, I I'm, won't I'm let you forget oh, it. I'm a man of my word. It will uh, be done. Uh, all right, thanks for everything. I really appreciate your time. And uh, until next time... Uh, Ditch Digger CEO out. See ya. If you enjoy this show, please share with anyone else you think will find value here. And please go to our website, DitchDiggerCEO.com for show notes, links, video clips, and more nuggets of entrepreneurial wisdom. Don't forget to follow me on social media at DitchDiggerCEO.
2: Ditch Digger CEO.